Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Hey Kerwin, where you have the questions and I give the answers. Uh, what are your top money-making call-to-action techniques on social media? When it comes to a call-to-action or, or a money-making technique on social media, you've really got to understand the co context of social media. It's not direct sales media. It's not direct marketing media. It's not call-to-action media. Um, it's a social media, which means, you know, the number one, my top money-making tips and call-to-action tips on, on social media is, first of all, build a relationship with your audience. Um, and the way that you build a relationship with your audience is through some form of relativity and creating a relationship between the problems that they have, the things that entertains them, the things that they laugh at, the things that they aspire to do, the things that inspire them to be more, and, and what it is that you do. And to me, that's the most important fundamental part of social media is creating this connection through some form of a relationship. And a relationship is based on something that's relative to them that they can relate to about what it is that you do. And then, only then, and, and look, I've said this a thousand times, I'll say it a thousand more, and on social media where, where playing with this thing called the mere exposure effect. And this mere exposure effect is a psychological phenomena whereby people tend to develop a, <coughs> a, um, a, a preference for things based on the amount of exposures that they have. And um, you know, on social media, when it's used as a, as a call to action mechanism, when it's used as a monetization mechanism at a direct coal face, it doesn't create a good impression. So the short version is, you know, I really like to build a relationship with people. I like to expose them to, you know, ideally at least you know, 10, 20 plus pieces of content before I throw a call to action out. And then when you throw a call to action out, it's a much, much easier. It removes a lot more of the uh, skeptic, skeptical uh, friction because, you know, the friction are the things that prevent people from doing the things that you want them to do. And one of the biggest components of, you know, marketing is, is skeptical friction. Like people have this desire not to act because they're a little bit skeptical. And the way that you remove that skeptical skepticism is by delivering content, delivering value consistently, constantly to the point where the skepticism is now gone. They now trust you. They now like, like you. They now respect you. And then when you throw a call to action in front of them, you don't need to be a sales and marketing douchebag to get a reasonable response. For me, when it comes to, you know, calls to action, you know, I don't want to sit here and give you a class on calls to action. I'd rather school you on the importance of a relationship and making you realize that when the relationship is strong, put it this way, a soft call to action will always outdo a strong call to action if it is done in the right part of the sequence. Meaning, if you do a strong call to action at the front end of your marketing campaign on a Facebook campaign, as an example, okay, it's not going to work nearly as well as a soft call to action that someone is going to see after about 10 to 20 exposures of really high quality content that they can relate to and connect to on a much deeper level. So my advice is focus more on building on relationship, less on the call to actions, and the call to actions in most cases will take care of themselves. But if you really want to master call to action, Look, there's so look. I'm a copywriter, um, so I do have a bit of an understanding about the linguistic nature of creating calls to actions and using double binds and you know essentially com compelling people to move. But it's a very different game on social media. So my advice, if you want to study call to actions, you know, study Dan Kennedy, you know, study you know some of the greats. Um, uh, fucking Jay Abrahams, um, Bill, oh gosh, there's so many others. That's a good place to start. But my advice is focus more on the relationship, less on the calls to action, uh, and the monetization will take care of itself. Ace Jackson. Hey, Ace. Uh, how to not get pissed off when someone says something you want to do is impossible. Okay, listen to this, Jackson. How do you not get pissed off when someone says that you can't do something that you want to do? You ready? Don't. Don't get pissed off. Like, um, it might seem like a really fucking obvious move, but it is. 
Um, you know, the, the challenge for most of us is when people say things that are that aren't aligned with our values, that are you know not aligned with the things that we believe. There's no reason that we should take offence to it. All that is really doing is exposing our weakness, exposing a button that they then can then push any time that they want to piss you off or push you around. The person who has no buttons can't be controlled. The person who has the most buttons is basically like a, a fucking remote control car. You can get them to do whatever you want. You just got to know which button to push. And for me, I don't like being anyone's remote control. I like you know making my own decisions on my own terms. And so I choose not to get pissed off. Now, are you saying, Cohen, that you never get pissed off? No, I'm not saying I never get pissed off. But I just choose to bring in consciousness as quickly as possible when I acknowledge and I become conscious that I am pissed off. And so when I am pissed off, my goal is to go, hang, whoa, hang on a second. I am pissed off. Let's take a little bit of a deep breath. Let's calm down. Let's recenter ourselves and let's get back to what's important here. What is the benefit of this? How is this situation serving me? What skills and knowledge and experience am I gaining as a result of this situation simulation right now? And most importantly, how can I fucking shove this motherfucker's face in this and prove to them that they are wrong? Get on and do it. Just do it. Don't get pissed off. You know, allow your actions and your and your and your results to do the talking and yeah, then piss them off with your results. Try that. This is on Instagram. The name is Teach Inherent Values. Hey, Teach. Uh, what are your thoughts on becoming the father your kid deserves? Uh, I never feel like I'm doing enough. Look, I, I think it's, it's being a fa- being a parent's a tough job, man. Because not only we are we competing with our you know our our own. Not only are we competing with our own perspective, meaning that we all, you know, it's very rare, I think, that any parent feels like they're doing enough, but we're also competing with you know, what we think is the ideal parent and how everyone else views us at the same time. Um, what's the basis of the question again? Let's. Uh, never, like, what are your thoughts on becoming the father your kids deserve? Look, my thoughts on becoming the father that your kids deserve is by being very conscious of what that looks like. You know, I feel very blessed that I grew up, you know, with uh, you know, with not a very pre- not a, a strong presence of a father in my life, and so as a result, at a very early age, I was able to define and clearly start to map out the type of father that I wanted, because there was a bit of a void there. And by virtue of doing that, I actually started to define and map out the father that I was going to be. And so, you know, I feel very blessed that I spent, you know, a good decade or a couple of decades actually, you know, defining, mapping out, getting clear and becoming, developing a very high level of clarity around the type of father that I wanted to be before I actually had my son. And so by the time my son came around, I had a very clear idea about what that was going to look like. Then he came along and then all that goes out the window because, you know, you have sleepless nights, you have stress, you have, you know, meltdowns and you have all that kind of stuff. But at the fundamental core, I'm very clear on the type of dad that I want to be. It doesn't mean I don't fuck it up. It doesn't mean I, you know, very rarely I yell at my child. But when I do, when I ever do fuck up, when I ever do yell at my child, the first thing I do every time is I catch myself fast and I'm very good at catching myself quickly and I apologize to my son. And as a result now, I've taught my son how to apologize. I've taught him to be able to recognize within himself when he does the wrong thing. And now the beautiful thing is, is now when I see him do the wrong thing or if he does, he accidentally yells at me or kicks me or has a meltdown. What's so interesting is now one of the first things he'll do once he calms down is he'll actually come up and apologize without being asked. And that to me is the product of you know, a great demonstration. And so for me, it's being clear uh, and having some non-negotiables and, and having a standard that which you want to adhere to. Because there's no point you know, having a goal of the type of parent that you want to be if, there's not, if, if your standards are low. Because you could have the goal to be the best parent in the world, but if you've got low standards, then you're going to basically, you know, you're only ever going to dribble in at the, at, the, at the level that you think you want to or that you need to based on where your standards are. So if you raise the standards, you raise the game. And so for me, it's also understanding the, the, the massive responsibility that we have. We have this huge responsibility to help uh, not only our children, but the next generation, because the reality is 
is, you know, this world's going to be pretty fucked up if we don't. We have, uh, we, we, we've got a very small window to do a lot of good work and uh, that requires a lot of parents to, to, to wake up to the responsibility of being a parent and what that actually means, not just in this moment for our kids, but also for the next generation. Good luck with that, man. Leonie Fitzgerald. Lily. Familiar name. Uh, at what point do you walk away from a business that's just not getting off the ground and get a real job? Look, I think you know when it's time to walk. It's like any relationship, you know, because I think sometimes, you know, this is one of the things that I've struggled with in the past is not knowing when to stop, not knowing when to quit, both in the business context and in a relationship context. But I'll use a relationship as a good analogy. You know, sometimes in a relationship, you get to that point where you've tried everything, you've had all the counseling, you've done everything you can, and it's just still not working. And you've got to ask yourself the question, you know, at what point is it, does it become unhealthy? And the moment something starts to become unhealthy, that's when you've got to. That's when you should be compelled to do something about it. And so, for me, the same rules really should apply in business. Like, if you've been trying the business and you've been getting help, and you've been trying this and trying that, and doing what you think you can, and everything else, and it's still not working, then you've got to really look at two things. You've got to really ask yourself the question: Is this really the business model for me? Because it's not necessarily about quitting business and going and getting a job. Maybe you, there's every possibility that you're in the wrong vertical. Maybe there's every possibility that you're not executing on everything that you say that you are or you should be. You know, because to me, when a business isn't working, it comes down to a couple of things. It comes down to, are you doing the right thing? Uh, like, i.e., are you f pursuing something that is of, of worthwhile purpose to you? Second thing, are you, doing the so are you doing the right thing? Second one, are you doing the right things? By the right things, meaning you know, if you've got someone who's giving you instructions and they're giving you instructions, but you're not following it, but you're convincing yourself that you are, then there's every possibility that that business may actually have hope. Now, it's like going to a, ma a marriage therapist and the marriage therapist going, okay, here are the things that you need to do to work on your relationship. But then you go home and you don't do them. Okay, and the relationship doesn't work. Well, counseling doesn't work. It's like, well, no, no, the counselor gave you all the right advice. But if you're not following that advice, then there's no point going to the counselor because you're just going to do what you're going to do anyway. Uh, and the third aspect is, you know, is uh, are you doing it for the right reason? And that kind of relates to the first one. You know, are you doing it to make money, or are you actually doing it because there's some kind of a higher purpose? You know, and are you doing it in the in in the right way in the context? And you're doing it for in the right way in the context of your health. You know, for me, whenever anything becomes um, dysfunctional, whenever anything creates a level of stress, whenever anything isn't working to the degree that it starts to affect your health, you got to ask yourself the question: Is it really worth it? And yeah, that's the, that's the time where you either take a step back and you maybe look at getting a job short term, you know, to cool your jets and maybe, re, you know, reconfigurate, rebuild, uh, reestablish before you go out and do it again, or you just take a bit of time off and then do it again. But, you know, I never think it's an either or. It's never just, well, this business doesn't work that I'm meant to be an employee. You know, business is a Baskin Robbins scenario. There's 52 different, 58, 46 different flavors out there times infinity. Um, and just because this flavor didn't suit you doesn't mean that there isn't another one out there that would. So give that a shot. Lee Lee, Lulu. Final question. Last question. Ronald Savage. Hey Ronald, you savage man. What is the most important tool in a consistent sales process? The most important tool in a consistent sales process is a psychology. One that can deal with failure on a consistent, back, um, on a consistent basis based on the feedback that we would refer to as rejection. Consistency is one of those things that is often underpinned by emotional resilience, grit, uh, the ability to suffer. Now, that's what grit is really all about. It's the ability to experience suffering but keep going. You know, anyone who's successful in any kind of fitness enterprise knows this. In order to be successful in some kind of fitness enterprise, you've got to have the ability to push through the pain barrier. 
consistently in order to win races. Uh, and the same is true, you know, in, in this scenario, if, if you want to be successful in this, in this aspect of your life, then you've got to develop a level of consistency around the things that create inconsistency and the things that create inconsistency in this area are the outside world, you know, because most people need the world to show up in a very specific way for them to behave in the way that they need to. When it comes to selling at a high level, you don't have that luxury. You can't wait for the world to show up in a way that you want it to. You actually have to show up in the way that you want to in order to get the world to bend to your will. And the way that you get the world to bend your will is by being consistent with the way that you show up. Uh, and the most important tool that's required to do that is a strong psychology, you know, which is underpinned by strong, strong stories and suggestions, strong beliefs, strong values, and a strong identity about knowing who you are. And all those things, when built upon, create a very strong sense of self-worth, a very strong sense of certainty, and those in themselves become very strong influential tools as well. Uh, so my advice, you know, work on you, develop you, develop a very good relationship between failure in the form of rejection and realize that rejection is the pathway. I was just saying this to my sales team, I was just doing a bit of a training with them before, you know, sales is one of those roles, it's one of those jobs, it's one of those occupations whereby it is one of the most powerful ways to develop yourself very quickly. Why? Because you've been put in front of constant stimulation that is in most cases uh, has some kind of a negative context. And what I mean by that is rejection. You know, we are mammals and by virtue of being mammals, we're herd animals, we don't like to be rejected. We like to be accepted because when we feel rejected, we associate that with threat and death. And so when you put yourself into a sales situation, you're just constantly facing threat and death all day long. And so as a result, that affects people mentally, that affects people physically, and that affects people consistently in terms of their consistency and the way that you, the way that you um, divert and the way that you, you know, convert that to a different response is start looking at your relationship with rejection and start creating a different, different response and a different meaning. You know, one that is more empowering, one where you're learning, one where you're sharpening, one where you're getting better with every rejection you get. Because if you can convince yourself of that, every rejection that you get will no longer become something that will reduce your consistency. It'll be create an environment that will produce consistency. Try that one on, see how that goes. My name is Kerwin Ray. That was episode 46. If you would like to follow us on every single fucking platform available at Kerwin Ray uh, or even website KerwinRay.com. Question of the day is... What are you most afraid of? I'm curious to know. What, what scares you the most about life, love, business, relationships, parenting? What is your greatest fear? Because the more we understand about ourselves, the more we understand about what our fears are, the more we can manage our triggers and the things that stress us. Let me know. Until next time, say hi to your mum for me. Thanks for listening to Hey Kerwin. If you would like your questions answered, don't forget to use the hashtag Hey Kerwin on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. 